Welcome to the FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Food and Drink Federation podcast. I'm Ted Woodward, Media Manager at FDF. I'm once again joined by FDF Chief Exec Ian Wright. Ian, I'm interested in your thoughts on the latest in corona, on coronavirus, which we'll, we'll come to you later. But I'd like to kick things off um, looking at yesterday's statement by Michael Gove to the Commons in relation to business readiness ahead of the end of the transition period. Uh, in the past few days, you'll have noticed there's been a, a number of news stories regarding a, a leaked document that the government had put together regarding reasonable worst-case scenario planning, uh, which suggests there could be maximum truck queues of 7,000 in Kent during January and delays of up to two days on goods crossing the channel. That, that guidance has now been published. Uh, what I thought was quite noticeable amongst these examples of worst case scenarios is that the onus at the moment is on businesses to prepare. Uh, but obviously, from an FDF perspective, we've been pushing government to pro- provide us with answers we need to know now for how long, roughly, would you say? Well, we, we, we were asking questions at the each of the previous three aborted EU exits in March, April and December of last year. And many of the same questions, though probably now with slightly different answers because circumstances have changed, remain unanswered. And we still don't know whether we will actually... Uh, get answers on these questions before the end of this year. And re- regarding uh, delays at uh, the border, what's the main questions, main outstanding questions we need answers uh, answers to? Well, how it's going to work? It's, it's all about practical issues. So we're not asking sort of big strategic questions now. We're asking what sort of pallets you're going to use and. Uh, what will be the nature of the bureaucratic checks that will be used and what potential is there for fast track and so on. And these are questions which with basically three months to go, uh, just over 100 days to go, actually probably fewer than 100 days now, we we really should know these, the, the government really should know what it would do in either potential outcome, it seems to me. I mean, it, there are two possible outcomes. One is that there will be a, a EU-UK free trade agreement, and the other is that there won't. And the government should know by now what would happen in each eventuality. And I, I, I know a number of people have said to me, oh, yeah, well, they do know, but they just don't want to tell you. And I, 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 in a way, I'd be more relaxed if I thought that were the case. But I don't think it is the case. I think, um, as with so much of public policy in these very tumultuous times, and I think you have to give the government the credit to recognise that these are unprecedented times, but they do appear to be making it up as they go along. And while that has the virtue of being current and probably more attuned to the immediate circumstances, it also makes it extraordinarily difficult for businesses to plan. And to some degree, I think that was reflected in what uh, Michael Gove said yesterday. And the other thing that's noticeable is that these assumptions only account for phase one of the UK's phase border model, but there are, in fact, two additional phases which will create their own issues. Yes, and I suppose you could argue that those additional phases are entirely dependent on which outcome they get. Um, And clearly, if we do get a deal, uh, everybody has referred to as a skinny deal. Incidentally, I've got some thoughts on that. I, I think you can understand why they would be hesitant to commit too far down the track because they, they, they don't want to spend an enormous amount of resource and time on planning for an outcome that, that isn't going to happen. 
And I guess they figure that by the time they've put phase one in place, they will know what the eventual destination is. Um, but again, it makes it extremely difficult to plan. And coming back to this two-day delay, can, can you provide us with an example of what that would look like for food and drink manufacturers? Yeah, and I think it, it, it probably has different impacts on those who are importing and those who are exporting. So if you're importing, you are in the situation where you want to get the product that you're bringing in, which will either be a, a, a finished product, might well go direct to a retailer or possibly to hospitality if there is any open at the point when this all happens. Um, and you're wanting to get there in, in timely fashion because all of our food industry is operated on a just-in-time principle. And you want it to get there in presentable fashion at the cost you've agreed. And all three of those elements, price, appearance, and timeliness, are put into jeopardy by the uh, potential for a delay. And if you're exporting, a delay is even worse in some ways because, again, you're probably not going to fulfill the conditions of your contract with your customer. And pretty quickly, one can imagine European customers or customers anywhere, actually, that a manufacturer might be supplying through the tunnel or through the short straight and then on either in the EU or beyond, Getting customers will get quite frustrated quite quickly if these sorts of delays make uh, delivery unpredictable or indeed add to the, the schedules in a much more long-term way because it won't be just in time, it'll be quite a bit out of time. And I do think, I think it's important to remember those three things. Price, because delay adds cost from the wages of the driver and the cost of moving the goods. Appearance, because the longer a product is in transit, the more it gets battered. And um, timeliness, it has to be on shelf at the point when the retailer or in the hospitality outlet or in the kitchen when the person doing the cooking requires it. And if it isn't there, it can't be used. And that it, that is letting down your customer. And I think those are all um, jeopardised by this potential two-day delay. You'll notice in the, in the papers today, this idea of a, a Kent permit, or some on Twitter are calling it a, a permit, um, in which lorries headed to the EU would have to have a permit in order to enter Kent. How, how feasible is that idea? Surely that can't be the least, can it? Well, I, I, I don't know, but I've, I've been saying on this webinar and in other forums for the last three or four months that if you live in Kent, uh, my advice to you for the last two months of 2020 is move um, because I think Kent is in danger of being turned into a sort of armed camp. You're going to have pretty pernicious police powers uh, and you're going to need a permit, not just if you're going to the EU, but you're also going to need a permit if you're driving a commercial vehicle in Kent uh, during that period. So you're going to need to be able to show that you're going about your normal business supplying uh, other businesses in Kent. You won't just have to have a permit to get through to go to the EU. That's, that's a big problem. And it's also a big problem because quite a lot of the traffic that goes through uh, to the tunnel is using the UK as a land bridge. So we not only do um, loads from within England, Scotland and Wales uh, and Northern Ireland, go through the tunnel, but also, crucially, uh, almost all of the food production and, uh, and delivery from the Republic of Ireland 
you know, a separate country and an EU member goes through the land bridge of the UK. So there's real disruption potential there, not just for UK businesses, but for those of our neighbours in the Republic of Ireland. And I think that's quite a serious prospect. Forgive me for this one, but so in essence, if you're a lorry driver, you'll be there with your, your coming in hand like Jim Henson. Otherwise, you'll be packing like you just received a karate shot from his piggies. <laughs> I can possibly comment. Um, well, you're going to be, and, and, and in fact, there is a, to, to extend the metaphor, there's the danger that business is seen in this context as, as sort of Statler and Waldorf sitting up in the gods complaining about everything all the time. But these are really serious threats and they are not necessary. You know, these are threats which the government has chosen to, uh, to impose on business. There are other ways of dealing with this. Um, and it, I do think there is a little bit of telling business it's over to you, mate, in what Michael Gove said. Although I also think that Michael is right to try and provide a fairly shocking description of what might happen in order to get those businesses who have not currently uh, got themselves ready for this uh, for this change uh, to get them to the table and get them understanding what they need to do. I do think there is some. Uh, some sense in that approach. And he probably knows uh, as well as anybody in, within government the impact that will have on food and drink. Yes, I think Michael, Michael Gove is by far the best informed minister outside DEFRA of what is likely to happen and how things are likely to develop. And, you know, I continue to repose an awful lot of confidence in his handling of, of uh, matters. And so I do think he, he, he will have measured the reaction and the uh, and the strength of the message quite carefully in order to try and get the outcome he wants. Later today, the Chancellor is, is set to unveil his winter economy plan, which is intended to minimise or further minimise the impact of coronavirus on business and, and primarily, we believe, to prevent mass job losses in the next few months. What, what do you think this will look like? Well, I'm interested to see it. I mean, I, I think it's inter- it, it is particularly pertinent that over the last sort of 72 hours uh, since it became clear that the Prime Minister was going to opt for a, a series of measures which, um, while falling short, considerably short of a national lockdown, are pretty pernicious for parts of our industry, particularly the hospitality and those manufacturers pointed at hospitality. Initially, what we got were fail, really fairly high-level generalities about the government's intention of protecting as many jobs as possible and putting its arms around business. And, and essentially what we got from the Prime Minister uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday was pretty vague. Um, in the statement he made, in his press conference, and in his uh, or his, his, his announcement to Parliament, and in the Prime Minister's questions yesterday, there wasn't a lot of detail, as so often in this case. Um, but I think that partly was, again, that the government was scrambling to put together the package that that we're going to see this morning. And, and again, I, I, I think you can make, uh, you can overdo the criticism of that. Um, it is important to react to events as they occur and to calibrate your response as closely as possible to uh, to the circumstances that pertain. And I think that is what we've seen from this Chancellor uh, through this crisis. He's been one of the towering figures of the crisis. 
and we'll see what he does today. And I, I was, funny enough, I was just talking to another journalist just before I came on this podcast. And um, we were talking about uh, the fact that the Treasury has led quite a lot of the thinking on this. And it occurred to me that that was true too in the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. And I mean, I'm old enough to have worked through that. And um, at that point, actually, the UK, because we were chair of the G8, was leading the way on how to respond to the crisis. And a lot of the thinking that that led the world out of that financial crisis came out of the 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 Whitehall Treasury, out of the Treasury building. And this is a sort of, and again, a lot of the thinking on bounce-back loans, on furloughing, on the various loan schemes has come from the Treasury. And I think it's a bit of a vindication of the mandarins of Whitehall that, that you have a lot of very clever people there who are able to respond quite so quickly. So I'm I'm very interested to see what comes out this morning and reasonably optimistic that it will be helpful to uh, to those in our industry who, um, who desperately need it. I certainly hope so. Given the, the tighter restrictions that were announced earlier this week on the hospitality industry and, and the, the role that food and drink manufacturers play in supplying that part of the, the sector, what, what would you like to see announced? Well, I mean, we are, I, I'm assuming that, that we have to accept that the, res, the regulations we've got now are going to continue for a prolonged period. Um, I wish they had consulted on them and discussed some of the specifics of them before they implemented them, because I think we could have got to the same result with quite a bit less pain and agony for the those who are going to lose their jobs or could lose their jobs through this. And that leaves aside the whole question of whether the government's strategy itself is fundamentally flawed. Um, and anybody who like me thinks it is flawed would do well to read Gus O'Donnell the former cabinet secretary in the Times in an article in the Times where he he very very clearly lays out the way in which government should react to these sorts of crises in a in a more uh, philosophical and in a in a way that talks about principles rather than specifics but is world away from the way in which this government has reacted to this crisis in certain circumstances. But so, I, I mean, I think uh, these regulations, particularly the 10 o'clock closing, particularly the um, table service only, has a big hit on on the hospitality sector and potentially, although they did backtrack pretty quickly, could have been even worse for takeaway coffee and uh, sandwiches. But they very quickly moved on that. And I think we should be grateful for that. That was a a sensible thing to do and uh, is to be welcomed. Here at the SDF, we talk about the the squeezed middle, so those companies in the middle of the supply chain. Um, Given the way that things uh, built up to begin restarting uh, over the last couple of months, are there any lessons learned in the way that government have have approached supporting businesses to restart? We look in the long term further ahead. What could be done differently for when, well, whenever that might be, that the next time that we have to begin uh, restarting and, and beginning to support those economies? Well, I think it's, I do think that what what you need is, is highly practical solutions that can be delivered pretty quickly and accessibly to those who are most affected. So one observation I would make is that it's people who are at risk here, not jobs. Um, people have jobs, but the jobs themselves don't really matter. It's the people who need to be supported. So you need to have a scheme like 
eat out to help out, which gets the money to the people extremely quickly. Now, in fairness, I, I know from people, our friends who run uh, catering establishments, cafes, restaurants, so on, that eat out to help out, you got the money within three days or four days. That's fantastic. Um, that allows businesses to uh, look at their cash flow. It allows, um, it allows confidence to come back into the enterprise. And I think in this case, what we need to see is, is a scheme that, that allows the support for the wages of those people who are either currently furloughed or whose job is um, seriously impacted by the new restrictions. And there will be people, I think a fairly large group, as I understand it, we've got about 900,000 people on furlough in the food and drink industry, mostly in hospitality, but some of them in specialist hospitality uh, targeting manufacturers. And those furlough schemes run out in the next few weeks. And if there are no orders to those businesses and they're not looking at a very enticing prospect for the next few months, they will make those people redundant at the end of the furlough, the furlough scheme. And what we need to see is some form of pretty extensive support for those wages through really to May of next year to give business the confidence to keep them on the books. And if they don't get that, I think we'll see a wave of redundancies, the like of which we probably haven't seen since the 1970s. Ian, thank you once again for your time today. It's uh, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again to everyone who has tuned into today's recording and, and those of you who downloaded last week, which was our, our most listened to podcast, I'm told. Uh, we're now on Amazon too. And you can, of course, listen to us via all the other major podcast platforms. Uh, do get in touch with any thoughts or feelings you have. And feel free to tweet us us by either at Food and Drink Fed or at FDF Corp Affairs. Uh, and if you're not, please do give us a follow. I'm Ted Woodward and I've been joined by Ian Wright. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.